Welcome back to the podcast of the River Anglican Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. Today, Jonathan takes us on the journey of the Magi, part of the Christmas story, and a little in advance of Epiphany. So here's Jonathan. Well, good morning. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for your precious holy word, Lord, of which we're so thankful that it reflects your character, your goodness, your truth, your justice and mercy, but also, Lord, at times your discipline and even your judgment. Lord, we thank you that you do not accommodate to us, Lord, that you do not change your righteous requirements, do not change, your law does not change, but we thank you for forgiveness and for the gospel of mercy that you extend to us, O Lord. Help us to take, Lord, these things seriously and to not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we talked about Mary, of the mother of Jesus, and what an unlikely hero she was. And this week we're going to actually talk about the Magi. And you're like, wait a second, this isn't Epiphany. What's going on here? Yes, I am violating some, some rules here. But we're going to talk about um, the, the character of the Magi today. And Chris Meckley is going to preach uh, January 8th on the um, Magi as revealing um, part of the Epiphany story, revealing the gospel to the Gentiles. So we are going to talk about the Magi again in Epiphany, January 8th. The kids are going to do a special a musical piece, so I hope you'll be here for that. But I'm also going to talk about the Magi this morning. So scholars are in agreement that the the Magi, the wise men, were likely from the region of Persia, um, Arabia. They were probably not kings per se, and there were probably not just three, okay? So now don't throw away your figurines that you have on your mantle. Let's not ditch the We Three Kings songs, okay? Because it's not bad that we have some kind of uh, way that we can sing about them. But it's likely, like Isaiah 60 said, that there was a large caravan that came. You know, we had these magi, and they were probably bringing family members, and they were probably bringing people to protect them and to help provide for them. A large caravan, and they wanted even their family members, like Isaiah 60 said, to see this new Christ child. So... Uh, what we do know from Scripture is that the Magi, uh, a term that really means um, kind of, uh, a, a, well, actually, it's the root of our English word magic, okay? So they were, you know, pagan astrologers, uh, people who were uh, adept at science, but also wise and learned scholars. We read about folks like these in the book of Daniel who were uh, counselors and advisors to kings like Nebuchadnezzar. And so they were well-versed in uh, history, well-versed in knowledge of the scriptures even. And when I say the scriptures, what we know about it is that when Jews were exported, so to speak, to Babylon and Assyria, many of the Jews after the exile stayed. And so a lot of the Babylonians and Assyrians got to see Jews practice their faith. So it's likely that they had some knowledge of the Jewish faith when they actually came looking for the Christ child, that they, they, they knew about Judaism and they studied the religions of the lands that were in, um, in, their, in their own land. So this explains 
also why when Christianity spread in the early church, there were already pockets of Judaism in Assyria and Babylon and, and Ethiopia and why Christianity spread because there was already kind of a foundation of theism in those areas. So this is a background to the wise men and why God called them and maybe even how God called them to leave their home. They recognized this star that, that was clearly to them divine, pointing to one who is to be the ruler of the Jews. And it makes sense that when they came looking for the king of the Jews, where did they go? They went to Jerusalem, the capital city, and they looked for the potentate of that capital city who was Herod to inquire about another ruler. Perhaps they were naive as to how Herod would feel about that. So Herod hears that another ruler is going to be born. And we read, if you want to open to Matthew, which is going to be the text that I'm going to focus on today, Matthew chapter 2, we read that Herod was disturbed. Well, that word disturbed is like he is afraid. He is terrified to his bones. He is uh, he's concerned, as was all Jerusalem. Well, why were they concerned? They were concerned because they were in a, a time of modest stability as far as uh, insurrection goes. So what was going to happen if there was going to be born another ruler in this time period, in Herod's time period? Was there going to be insurrection? Was there going to be another gomla? If you know any of, of, of Jewish history in the... Um, First century, was there going to be a Maccabean revolt uh, and so forth? And so after looking into the scripture, because you'll notice that Herod and, and even his counselors didn't have prophecy at their fingertips. They had to look into scripture to find uh, that this mysterious king was going to be born, verse 5, in Bethlehem. And it was based on this prophecy of which we read that out of Bethlehem, out of Bethlehem will come a ruler that will shepherd the people of Israel. What Herod realized was there was going to come another ruler, another person who was going to be the true shepherd of Israel. He had in his mind military and political kingship, of course. Little did he know and little did the rest of his companions or counselors know this was going to be a spiritual kingship that would literally turn not just Israel but the world upside down. And not through military or political reign, but through spiritual reign, through hearts and values and lives being changed. And so Herod is faced with a choice. Herod Antipas, by the way, because there's a few different Herods. And he was faced with a choice. Will he trust God? Okay, will he surrender to God's will for, for this time period and for his life? Or what will he do? And we read in verse 7 how he responds. Herod calls the Magi secretly to find out the exact time the star had appeared. And he sends them to Bethlehem and he says, Oh, go and search for this child. Find the child so I too may come and worship him. Friends, is he sincere or not? Not at all. He's not sincere. We learn in verse 16 he has no plans to worship the child in fact, he does the exact opposite. He orders an edict, or he makes an edict, that every boy under the age of two be murdered in hopes to kill this threatening 
ruler. Read with me Matthew 2. We're going to start verse 9. After they'd heard the king, they, meaning the Magi, went on their way, and the star that they'd seen, when it rose ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So God uses what are essentially pagan or non-Jewish astrologers from Arabia to confirm the identity of this Messiah King. And he uses these unlikely heroes to do his will, exposing the truths of Herod, the truth of Herod's hearts, but also explaining and exposing the truths of your hearts and minds. And so there are three truths that come out of the lives of these magi, and that's what I want to focus on this morning, because I won't be here January 8th, because Scott, you know, manipulated me into going to Belize with another group of people. So that's (laughs) suffer for Jesus in Belize. So here's three truths. The Magi seek Jesus, they bow down in worship of Jesus, and they give to Jesus. Well, first, the Magi seek Jesus, verse 9. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, the star that they'd seen when it rose ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. What does it mean to seek? It means to inquire, to be curious to listen and to learn and to search diligently. And boy, that's what these magi did. Think about the trip that they took, right? The expense, the cost, the risk to find this king of the Jews, this magical star, their commitment to finding Jesus. I don't know if you see it, but I find it inspiring and compelling and convicting what they did to seek Jesus. You and I, of course, seek things. We seek jobs and careers, and we seek better jobs than we might have, or a job if we don't have one. We seek good grades and careers. We seek a spouse. We seek things that are lost. I recently lost a set of keys on the way from Pittsburgh to um, back here to Blacksburg, And it had the keys for basically everything in my life. All my kids' keys, second keys to their cars, four fobs to different cars, just in case we were to lose one, keys to the church, keys to our house, keys to everything. And I had to call rest stops on the way here, you know, like Arby's. Like, do you guys find a set of keys? Like, no, sir. You know, can you check the safe? Yes, we did check the safe. You know, this kind of thing. Anywhere I stopped. And finally, three days after I got here, someone found them, praise God, and turned them in. It's like $500 to replace all that stuff. Have you ever been somewhere where a child gets lost? And what happens? You start with like, does anybody know where someone is? And then before you know it, everyone's like going outside, yelling at the top of their lungs, Where are you? Where are you calling their name? There's a desperation 
when a child gets lost. That's what it means to seek. And when the Magi sought, they looked diligently and earnestly. They inquired. They went from where they were to where they were not and where they could not be. And when we seek, friends, we go from where we are to where we could not be physically, spiritually. In doing so, we in the Magi, we travel from ignorance to knowledge. We travel from separation to Jesus, from Jesus, to sitting at Jesus' feet. Seeking is absolutely essential as a follower of Jesus Christ. And my question for you and for me this morning is, are we seeking? Are we curious? Are we intently looking for Jesus? But there's a big difference between seeking Jesus and seeking something from Jesus. An answer, an experience, comfort, peace. Johann Eckert, the German theologian, said, If we seek God for our own good and for our own profit, we are not seeking God. Oswald Chambers says, Spiritual lust is I must have it at once. And it causes me to demand an answer from God instead of seeking God himself. God himself who gives the answer. Is today the third day and he still hasn't done what I expected? Says Oswald Chambers. No, the purpose of prayer, he says, is that we get a hold of God, not the answer. Friends, the Bible promises that when we seek the Lord diligently, intensely, with curiosity, tirelessly like the Magi, we are promised in time to find him. You remember Jeremiah 29, 13, where God says to his people, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And then you will come to me and you will listen to me. What a beautiful verse. The result of seeking is to find Jesus. And when we find Jesus, like the Magi, we will worship. And that's my second point. The Magi bow down and worship. Look at verse 11. On coming to the house, they sought, they came to the house, and they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped. Well, it's a cool word, that word worship. In the Greek, it's a compound word like a lot of them. I remember the first time I discovered this word, I had looked it up in an actual physical um, Bible dictionary, and it was the word proskuneo, two words, pros to preposition to come towards something in Keneo, to call, like to call towards or to kiss. And I love that. Worship is ultimately a kiss of God to us and us to kiss God. It is a moment, an intimate conversation, an exchange of love. Worship is what we do when we see something or someone that is true and good and beautiful and desirable and admirable. And when we do, we worship. There is true worship and there's false worship. I just want to talk about false worship for a minute. False worship will highlight better what true worship is. We see the first false worship when Adam and Eve were in the garden and 
when they turned from trust and intimacy with God to trusting the serpent and and looking to the tree. And it says in verse 6 of Genesis 3, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. That word desirable is the word to covet. Worship ultimately is coveting. It's desiring something, fulfillment from the created order, not from the creator. False worship is when we find our identity and our sustenance and our sense of esteem and fulfillment in things or in people, in stuff that we're not supposed to find our worth in. Instead of saying, Lord, thank you for this beautiful person, this beautiful woman or this beautiful man, we find ourselves lusting. Instead of thanking God for money and for the things he's given us, we find ourselves over-consuming or hoarding, jealous of what other people have, or ungrateful for what we do have, comparing ourselves with others. False worship is when we decide, rather than to surrender what isn't the way it should be to God, we take control. We mistrust just like Adam and Eve. All this is false worship. John Calvin says this, man's nature, so to speak, is a factory of idols. He continues, for what is idolatry if not this? To worship the gifts in place of the giver. Peter Crift, theologian, says, the opposite of theism is not atheism. The opposite of Theism is idolatry. Tim, Tim, I was going to say Timothy Keller. Tim Keller says, if you love anything more than God, even if you believe in God, if there's anything in your life that's more important to you than God, then it is a master in your life, and it will continually say to you, serve me or die. Well, Lord, how can I know what it is I worship? That's where my heart goes. Well, we worship what it is we put our time and our passions and our energies and our resources into beyond what we should. You and I worship where we find our true identity and our purpose and our fulfillment. What does it look like to worship Jesus? It looks like the Magi searching diligently for him coming to him, waiting upon him, listening for his voice, just sitting in his presence and dedicating time to him. Worship is ultimately like a relationship, time. We do that in the mornings or afternoons and evening. We listen for his voice through the word of God and through the spirit of God. We retreat and reflect and we find ourselves renewed from the war of the world. And we seek him alone and we seek him with others. That's why we need community. And when we worship like the magic, like the magi, we experience the truth and the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. He reminds us, by the way, when we worship, that we also are true and good and beautiful. He reminds us that we're loved and we're cherished and we're honored because we're created in his image. How many of you have ever read the story of Punchinello? Come on. Oh, man, more of you have to read the story of Punchinello. 
When Punchinello's goes through life, he just keeps getting on him sticker after sticker. Keeps getting weighed down by life, but he goes to see the master at the end of the story. And one by one, the master, master removes these stickers of shame. And he discovers that he is not who he thought he was. He is cherished and good and loved. See, because we spend time with Jesus, we realize that we are in the image of God, true and good and beautiful, not because of who we are, but because of his light and his countenance upon us. And because of that, out of that worship comes giving. Out of that worship comes a passion to do things and to be things for Jesus Christ. It doesn't come before it, it comes as a result of it. And so I and we as a church don't need to force people or coerce people to give. We simply encourage them to come to Jesus and to worship. And out of that comes our giving. And that's my final point, the Magi give to Jesus. On coming to the house, verse 11, they saw the child, they bowed down and worshiped, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, let me talk about those three very briefly. Gold just rep- simply represents wealth and power, but I do have a theory about the gold. Because you might remember that when Israel was liberated from Egypt, God had strategically planned it so that the Egyptians gave them very valuable possessions. Now, isn't this a cool correlation? That when the, when the Israelites left Egypt, They used the money from those possessions to sustain their time in the wilderness. And eventually those possessions, those were used to furnish the temple. And isn't it cool here that we see the gifts of these foreigners, of these magi, furnishing the temple of Jesus? Isn't that wonderful? And these gifts are used in a very practical way to fund this young, very poor family So they can go to Egypt and escape Herod and live in Egypt for a time and then eventually come back and live uh, again in Palestine. So that's the gold, but frankincense was this type of incense and perfume also so precious. It not only signified the worth of Jesus like the alabaster jar, pardon me, that was broken at his feet before his death, but it, it represents him as the fragrance to the world and you and me as the aroma of God to this sad and at times dark world. Finally is myrrh. And myrrh is this outlier. It wasn't a typical gift, especially for a baby, unless you know the destiny of the child. Myrrh was used for centuries in the preparation of a body for burial, foreshadowing Jesus' death. And it was actually on the cross that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh was used in oil for anointing kings, fitting because the Magi had come looking for the king of the Jews. The question for us this morning is since the Magi gave to Jesus, what is it that we bring to Jesus? What is it we give to Jesus? What is it that we, that I and my soma and my person 
do for Jesus. Now, I had a mentor in seminary, and some of you have heard this before, but it never gets old to me. <clears throat> but I had a mentor during seminary. He's an Episcopal priest. And he used to say to his church in this wonderful non-Pittsburghian English accent, he was living in Pittsburgh, but he had this beautiful English accent. And he said, what do you do for Jesus Christ? What do you do? And he was speaking to this, you know, just glorious, you know, church of whatever, 2,000 people. We were all, you know, most people there were very comfortable, much like here at least not wondering where they were going to be living from one day to another. Now, as a Protestant, this always really bothered me. What do you do for Jesus Christ? I'm like, wait a second, I'm a Protestant, man. You're justified by faith, not by works. And it really bothered me that he would say that. What do you do for Jesus? But, you know, as I get older, I see things a little bit differently. I see things like James, the brother of Jesus, who said, you know, you show me your faith by what you believe, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. He said, faith without works is dead. Of course, our faith does not substitute, excuse me, our works do not substitute for our faith. But our works, our deeds, show how we live. And what we give either proves or it calls into question the reality of our faith. So it does matter what we do. And if we aren't prone to give our time, talents, and treasures like the Magi, it begs the question, why? What have I, have I not bowed at the feet of Jesus in worship? Is that why I don't want to give, why I'm not passionate to give of my time, talents, and treasures? And I say that as not as a person who's trying to fear you or guilt you. I say that as a person who's very much in that journey alongside of you. Well, in closing, there are several ironies in this biblical story of the Magi. The Magi are the epitome, which I have read that word that way before, but epitome, it's easy to read it that way. The epitome of whatever, hyperbole. But <clears throat> the Magi are the epitome of, of what in a Jewish mind might be described as the worst of the Gentiles, okay? Because you might remember when they were taken to Assyria, they put hooks in the mouth of the Jewish people to carry them across the desert, around the desert. And yet God draws these men <laughs> to come and worship the Christ child. And friends, I want to remind us this morning that God loves everyone. And he uses anyone for his glory. Don't ever stop praying for those people that you want to come to know Jesus because if these astrologers from Persia can come to Jesus, there's hope for anyone. The Jews who are right in the middle of this birth don't recognize Jesus, but here are these astrologers from afar who do. And when the Magi find him, they worship and they bow down to him. They're curious to find the Christ child. Whereas the Jews around Jesus do not oftentimes understand or accept or reject him. In fact, they even conspire to crucify him. And it was the gospel of John in the first chapter that John explained this 
phenomena because as he said, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world and he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so you and I find ourselves this morning in a place like Herod because the light of the world has come and we have a choice. How are we going to respond to his arrival? Because he is a king, he threatens our dominions. He threatens our power and our control over our lives, what we want to be and what we want to do and how we want to do it. He threatens our pride. He threatens our self-rule just like Herod. And the question is, how will you and I respond to the usurping of our power by Jesus, the true king? Will we search diligently, even when things are opaque and cloudy and even painful? Are we so threatened that we will not only mistrust him, but we would, if we were back in that day, say, crucify him? It's my life. So are you a wise man, wise woman, or are you a heron? Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at therivernrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 915 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.